LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moft, and my guest today is David Elkington, who joins us to discuss his book, The Ancient Language of Sacred Sound, The Acoustic Science of the Divine. The Earth resonates at an extremely low frequency. Known as the Schumann Resonance, this natural rhythm precisely corresponds with the human brain's alpha wave frequencies at which we enter into and come out of sleep, as well as the frequency of deep meditation, inspiration and problem solving. Sound experiments reveal that sacred sites and structures like pyramids and cathedrals also resonate at these special frequencies when activated by chanting and singing. Did our ancestors build their sacred sites according to the rhythms of the earth? Exploring the acoustic connections between the earth, the human brain and sacred spaces, Elkington shows how humanity maintained a direct line of communication with Mother Earth and the Divine through the construction of sacred sites such as Stonehenge, Newgrange, Machu Picchu, Shark Cathedral and the pyramids of both Egypt and Mexico. He reveals how human writing in its original hieroglyphic form was a direct response to the divine sound patterns of sacred sites, showing how, for example, recognisable hieroglyphs appear in sand patterns when the sacred frequencies of the Great Pyramid are activated. Looking at ancient hero legends, those about the bringers of important knowledge or language, Elkington explains how these myths form the source of ancient religion and have a unique mythological resonance, as do the sites associated with them. The author then reveals how religion, including Christianity, is an ancient language of acoustic science given expression by the world's sacred sites and shows that power places played a profound role in the development of human civilization. Hello and welcome, David, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Great to be here, Greg. Thanks for having me. Today, David, we're going to be discussing your book, The Ancient Language of Sacred Sound, the Acoustic Science of the Divine. Uh, you, we mentioned off air, actually, this book has just come out, but you did publish this. It's basically, the, the edition's about 10 years old, and this is a new one that's come out, updated, revised, and whatnot. So before we dive into talking about that, for listeners who don't know, just tell them a little bit about your background and work in general, and then again, how the book came about. The uh, first edition was actually published in 2001, uh, um, oddly 20, enough, 20, 20, sorry, 20 years ago. Um, and it was the culmination of about 25 years of work before that. Uh, I was very interested in the whole idea of, of mythology and uh, I work as an Egyptologist. I worked in the ancient history field for a, a long time. I come from the point of view of having studied at art school, um, because my gift is, is, is visual. So I, I see things differently in, in, in that way. Um, and I'm also a free thinker. I'm, from a, 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 an Anglo-Irish background, so 
I have a kind of a non-conditioned reflex, if you like, and um, I'm a master of the Irish martial art, which is humour. Uh, <laughs> I used to write for, 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 for TV shows and radio shows, BBC, etc. So um, you, uh, I'm, I'm coming from a completely different perspective in seeing things and seeing the connections between things, and that's my, that's my, my obsession, as it were. We live in a world that's really not very connected. We're under an illusion that we live in a, a global world where we're all interconnected. Actually, I don't see that um, because people can't see the connections in everyday, in everyday culture, in history, in their own thinking, in the history of religions and spirituality, etc. Um, and I think it's really essential now that we begin to to see things differently from out of the box. And it frustrates me that a lot of modern thinkers today think as a matter of their conditioned reflex from within the box. They're fighting to get out of it, to get that outside view. But most of them fail at their various attempts to climb out of that box. The box, of course, being Plato's cave. So what they think is reality is merely, merely a reflection on the wall. I think... And I might be um, um, perhaps delusional in saying this. I'm quite happy to admit that. But I think that I'm actually thinking from outside the box, uh, perhaps from another box. Um, so I want to kind of climb to the top of the, the, the rim of the box. And I want to stretch out my hand and shake hands with the other inhabitants and see where we can go. I want to begin with, I mean, I've set out in my recorded introduction kind of a basic synopsis of what the book covers. I mean, there's a lot of ground there, but for people who are not familiar with it, at least to know roughly some of the, the main touch points. But I want to start with a quote from the book. And there was a few things that jumped out at me as I went through it that for me said it could be used to lead on to say a great deal more or that were one or two lines in themselves uh, said, a, you know, almost a book's worth of, 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 of thought, of insight. And the first one is... Um, Looking at the pyramids of Egypt or of Central America and at the great Gothic cathedrals of Europe, uh, there is a sense that they represented a peak of achievement and that in the aftermath of such an achievement, it was a long, slow decline from a once great height. So mm -hmm. let's just use that as a, as a starting point. I think that basically what has happened is that as humanity developed... Um, well, let's put it this way. As humanity emerged from the cave environment or climbed down from the trees, if you like, which frankly I think is a mildly insulting way of putting it, but it's a simple way, we, we did one thing and one thing alone. Did we build supermarkets? No. Shopping malls? No. The local post office, schools, you name it? No. The very first thing we did as a cohesive beginning of society was to construct the sacred place. And you've got to ask yourself the question, why? And I think that the answer to that is not just in the fact that it was a collective effort, but actually that in emerging from the embrace of Mother Earth, we were trying to maintain contact with her. So it's a bit like sending your kids off to school. They've just come home from university. They're going to leave home. And the thing you say to them as they, as they drive through the gate is, don't forget to phone home. 
I mean, we all saw that wonderful film in the 80s, um, E.T., the extraterrestrial. And, of course, in the midst of all of that, we had the graffiti in, in various pub loos and airports across the world saying, E.T., phone home. Well, it was the same for us. And mm. I think that this is basically what, what, what led to the collective rise of a peak in civilization. So it was at the point at which we had attained that initial peak that we began the grand slalom downwards because then our thinking became much more, um, well, it became much less collective, much more individual, but also fragmentary. And of course, what we're doing now is we're going through the phase, I believe, in civilization where perhaps that thinking is now about to become a collective again. But the, the danger we have today is that there isn't much um, respect for individual thinking, particularly for that which is out of the box. So, of course, this book has been dismissed by high-minded, eminent people within academia and elsewhere as being New Agey and, and so on and so forth. But I've looked in, in it, and I've had other people look in it and scan it, and no, it's certainly not that, because it's based upon hard science. But, of course, what these people really mean is the distinction between pure science and applied science. Today, if you think for something, you've got to think of it in an applied way because we need to make profit. But if we go back to the Victorian Edwardian eras, the age of discovery in our own time, the science was much more pure. You could go your own way. You could look at what you wanted to look at. You could publish your, your academic papers. You could publish your, your thoughts and your, your results. And you would get lauded for it because it was yet another discovery for us to grab hold of and out of which then could be applied in scientific terms. Today we're limited by our thinking within our society and this is what I'm getting at in terms of where we are now compared to where we were three, four, five, six thousand years ago. Well, there's many people have spoken and written about how the, the move from a sort of collective consciousness in humanity uh, through to more individualism was kind of a necessary evolution, necessary transition. I think that certainly makes a lot of sense. But your idea about it perhaps becoming more collective, um, again, is interesting. And you sort of, con sort of well, contempt, I'll use that word for uh, the wrong type of individual thinking, I shall say, is certainly evident at the moment. So would you, would you agree that the sort of evolution of individual thinking of the that, that that was just part of the evolution of consciousness consciousness it was if not necessary then perhaps logical or even inevitable i think that the, that is absolutely the case it was absolutely and entirely necessary for it to happen for us to move forward and the point i make in the book is that the 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 art of script the art of handwriting the art of the alphabet which is the expression of the language at the place, which appears within the very sound wave patterns at these particularly sacred places, gave rise within us to a miracle. And the miracle is that you could actually express yourself and leave a note for somebody else without having to be present at that place to inform them of what you wanted to say. So in other words, the invention of writing meant that we could be more distant. And not just distant from each other, but distant eventually from the sacred site. Because once we had invented script, 
we moved away from the sacred site to become then less engaged with it on a on a spiritual scientific mode for it then to become more religious and as we all know religion is infamously very political in its intent it has really got very little to do with spirituality so what we're looking at now is the idea of poets and gleemen with the rhythms of language with the rhythms of song and the rhythms of human creativity coming back again into mode so that we can all look at this with new insights and connect with each other once more because i use the word collectively very very reluctantly because of course it's a word that was associated of course with the worst excesses of the stalinist era in the in the soviet socialist days um and we don't want to go down that path again do we no and actually these days particularly we find ourselves now with with you know social and political trends um anybody says collective i absolutely bristle you know i can feel myself just going oh you know yes <laughs> exactly because i the, the way i felt from the, the earliest part of my life when i really began to think about these things is when i was first went to school actually and i remember just thinking why am i here i didn't why i didn't agree to this the adults have told me I have to do this. I hate it. You know, put me in the library by all means, leave me there, but I don't want to be in this classroom, you know, with in this, in this, mm. in this situation. So yeah, yeah, collectivist. Uh, and and I, I feel so conflicted about this as well sometimes because I read, you know, we talk about ideas of uh, humanity coming together, um, collective effort, um, you know, cooperation, not competition in nature and all these things. And it all sounds so good. And evidently, it, 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 I think ultimately it is cooperation that's allowed us to become the dominant species on the planet. But yeah, so I don't know if you see where I'm coming from. It's, it's definitely, I feel very conflicted about it uh, because it's like, for me, it's each case on its merits. I'd like to be an individual who will choose to cooperate, um, <laughs> if that makes sense. I think that's absolutely the way um, that I, I would think about it as well in that sense. I mean, I have to say I, I have become very cynical about the world at present, but, but I'm not so cynical when I see the change that is now upon us. Uh, we're seeing systems changing. We're seeing the culture that we, we have inherited being challenged enormously, both for good and for bad. But, you know, time goes on. We cannot stay frozen within the epoch. We have to move on. We have to advance. We have to evolve. Um, what I love at present about where we're going in terms of where the young are is that they are so much more sensitive to the needs of our planet and to each other than I was ever brought up to be in, in my own childhood at my, my point in their youth. So I love that. Where I worry is that they have been conditioned by schooling and unfortunately by universities today, particularly in the UK, to think in only one direction and not to be given free reign to think more individually. Um, and I, I, I say this because, as I said, I'm a master of the, I'm a black belt in the Irish martial art of, of humour. Um, and the, the thing is that in humour, you do often find a truth. Um, Prince Charles uh, said once that you could always tell somebody of truly spiritual meaning 
because they always had a very big sense of humor. Because when you see something that you recognize that is so, so, so true, but true in the almost the divine sense of the word, something so, so wonderfully all encompassing, your first um, response is to echo it with joy, with laughter, because what it is is the it's the it's the overlap between two opposing points and it's where they meet that you find the truth today's youngsters are being told that humor now must be controlled and and so on and so forth we need to go back to an innocence within humor so that it can allow us to have greater innocence in terms of our thinking uh, because it's in that frame where creativity really begins to burgeon and enlarge itself and then to impose itself upon our society. Well, um, I feel that we'll return to current events, shall we say, um, uh, uh, towards the end of our talk. But let's dive into some of the uh, content of the book. Uh, You talked about the development of script, of writing there. And two of the things, well, these are interlinked interlinked things in the book that you're very concerned with and that's the development of language through and obviously that is sound you know of course that comes from our, our thinking but we vocalize you know our, we express ourselves through language we make sounds and the interesting section of your book talking about the development of writing from that because of course there's been much written and thought about how writing came about you know trying to to, you know, to make marks in you know, some visual way or some you know, of, of demonstrating a thought of communicates something that uh, one person w- you know w- would utter the sounds that they would make how could we represent that in a way that could could be there when the person is not there your book presents a very really different way to think about how that came about um, because a lot of people think well language developed purely through mundane mundane necessity and that writing followed on from that but when you take the 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 angle that your book does you know what the first thing we did you're saying for example was develop these uh sacred sites and how all, how the development of language sounds and then writing all actually pivots around that so it was just a, for me it was a, a different way of looking at these things uh and, and a really powerful way to to draw them together it's a curious thing because um the first thing i noticed before i actually um you could say come across the correlation of 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 script emerging from these sites was the fact that in the mythologies associated with these various um mythologies in these various cultures across the planet what you have is the site is built as it were to reflect the myth and i think the most obvious example of that is actually in the bible um, the very first words of the book of Genesis, as well as the uh, Gospel of St. John in the New Testament, is in the beginning. And in Hebrew, that word is Bereshith. Now, Bereshith splits into, into a number of, of words, but ultimately it means to build a palace on a high place. And what it's talking about is a kind of pre-creation myth where the gods have to fight their battles in order to overcome chaos and order. And then having implanted order, they can then go about the business of creating the universe, creating uni- um, uh, mankind, creating animals, and you name it. And, and this is e- extraordinary because you've got the same kind of legend across the planet. And 
in a sense, these places have been constructed and they're, they're constructed to, to pay court to the idea of the hero god, who is the arbiter between humanity and the divine, whatever you think the divine might be. So another correlation, therefore, is that it is generally the hero who brings the art of language down from the gods to humanity. Now, obviously, in very ancient period, from around about six, 7,000 BC onwards, um, you have the development of hieroglyphs in Egypt, and you've got a glyphic form also in Mesopotamia called cuneiform. But the real development of script um, comes about with the development of a language called Proto-Sinaitic, which happens in the Sinai Peninsula between the years 1700 to around about 1400 BC. We can't be more accurate than that at the present time. But that is where we have the very first alphabetic script, because if you wanted to leave a, a note out for the milkman in ancient Egypt, you'd have to actually put together a whole ream of phonograms, logograms, and ideograms, which will give you the sound of the word, what the word means, and basically how it should be placed in order on the sheet. And no doubt by the time you've actually um, inscribed your stone tablet with the hieroglyphs, the milk's arrived, it's gone off, and you've got hard cheese. But with, 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 with the development of, of cursive script, with the alphabet, named after the first two letters, alpha, beta, and so on and so forth, you've suddenly got a mode um, of actually writing notes really quickly. So it's, it's, it's quite a development. And, and this is what's so curious. It's at that point that civilization really starts to take off. It really becomes quite mercantile, because that first alphabet is then developed by um, an extraordinary people known as the Canaanite Phoenicians, and they are the world's great merchants, and they appear everywhere. And suddenly you have the spread of this script in various of its forms, in Paleo-Hebrew, Paleo-Greek, all over the Mediterranean. And it's all down to the idea of the hero at the sacred site. Now, interestingly enough, the actual physiology of the human brain means that certain sections of it, the neurites, take on the form of alphabetical shapes. So the alphabet just isn't to be seen at the sacred site. Over the course of four or five thousand years, it's actually developed in our minds, in our brains physiologically. You can see it anatomically. And that's an extraordinary way of, of seeing the history, because there we have evolution in action. And suddenly you can understand why language is very powerful. Now, another aspect of this is the idea of dialect. I'm speaking in a flat English usage. But if you go to my, my home country, Ireland, and I really regret not, not having the, the Southern Irish accent, it is lyrical. It's enchanting. You can listen to an Irishman with a, with a good dialect for hours on end. And the way they sing, the way they recite poetry is not only captivating and compelling, there's something mystical about how it draws you in. And this is a remnant of how language initially was spoken. It was not spoken, actually. It was sung. So, of course, the universe at creation as all of these myths seem to tell us, was born out of music. And language is merely the libretto to that music. And here today, we have come to our expression. It's still musical, 
It's becoming less so, but I'm hoping in years to come, as people begin to understand this more inertly, that actually that rhythm will come back and they will see within it the rhythms of nature itself and therefore their place within that. Well, I'll have a go at the um, the, the southern accent then, seeing as I'm from the north. Uh, let's try this. <laughs> God almighty, David, what the... Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's, it's lovely. I mean, you know, I'll, 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 I've just written this down in a, a book I'm working on at the moment. Um, you know, another aspect to script and its original meaning, because today we have, well, I mean, there's 20 volumes of the Oxford English Dictionary. We have one word meaning one thing in large part. It's a generalization, but in large part. In the ancient world, one word could mean many things. And furthermore, it had a numerical meaning into the bargain. So what you have in ancient languages is this wonderful ability to pun. And you still have that in the English language. I mean, there's a wonderful Irish joke told by the late Frank Carson. Maggie O'Murphy goes to the doctor. She says, Doctor, doctor, I forgot to take my contradictory tablet. He says, you're ignorant. She said, that's right, three months. <laughs> so, you, you know... You can only understand the punning nature if you understand the double entendres within the words used. So you can then take that approach back in history and you begin to see that words had dual, triple, quadruple meanings. So when you read these mysteries in their original languages, suddenly a whole realm of possibility opens up and it's very remarkable. Well, I, I teach English as a foreign language as a sideline, and it's certainly one of the reasons that English can be so difficult to learn for, for, for people from a certain background, certain language background. Not so much the basic language, uh, that's difficult enough, but when they start to become more advanced, you know, and they're trying to use their English in, in, you know, more conversational ways, uh, you know, not just, uh, just to get things done, like, you know, you know, where's the library? How do I get on this bus? You know, how much does this cost? All that sort of stuff. When they're actually trying to express themselves and when they're then listening to English or reading English, uh, especially when it's not formal, you know, if they're listening to, to a conversation, if it goes off into some of these territories, it can be very difficult to keep up. I think it's the same with any language for, with an outsider, but I mean, I can really speak about English as, you know, as my first language, but that's definitely the case. There's so much room for, for subtlety and nuance and, and double meaning, literally double entendre. And it's, it, it, this is another aspect of today's culture. Again, love the young, love where they're coming from. Um, and they have my wholehearted support, but it would be great if we got rid of Twitter and, and emojis and things like this, because the nuancing of language is is it's falling apart there is none it, there's there's action and there's reaction there's no nuancing in this in ireland and in other countries we have a sense of humor which allows nuance mm. um and this is what needs to be taught more because let's not forget also that language is a means of expression if you take away a means of expression from an individual or from the collective whole you end up with enormous frustration. Um, I can, this, this is my theory of why Germany went to two world wars. I think it was down to her language, because when you're having a language, uh, a conversation in, in English, um, and I say this with apologies to my, my German friends, I love them to bits, but 
you know, in English, when you're talking, you know where I'm going. So by the time I've, I've come to the end of my sentence, you already formulated a reply. But in German, all the verbs come at the end. So you have to wait. And of course, your frustration would build up. This is, I have to say, this is a half humorous theory, by the way. Uh, and I think this is where possibly, you know, the Germans are thinking, oh, we're fed up with this. Um, and of course, the frustration builds up and it becomes a, a collective thing. And it's interesting because about 20, 30 years ago, I believe there was a vote in the German parliament to actually make English their official language, which is um, extraordinary. Um, but I'm, I'm glad they kept their language because it's one of the romance languages. It's one of the great languages of, of European culture. And the thing I like about the German language, as, as with the French, is that you do need to consider more about the way you think within it. English now has become, to a certain degree, a throwaway language. Mm. Um, we're, we're now getting rid of Shakespeare from schools because of colonialism and stuff like this. But what we're throwing out with the bathwater and the baby is the rhythm and the poetry of language. It's double meaning, it's dual meaning, it's nuancing. And as I say, once you take that expression away, you revert. Culture and civilization actually begins to collapse because language is the glue of humanity. And we must not forget that. Well, this brings to mind um, Orwell's 1984, doesn't it? In the gradual, you know, whittling away of the language available to the masses um, with which they could express themselves, you know, and the, the fewer words you have, then, you know, the fewer ideas you can express. And, and we think in terms of language. Uh, so therefore, you know, a whole pool of concepts and ideas begins to shrink as well. It does. I mean, I mean, you, you can look that up actually in the dictionary. You know, the, the French word for, for, for treasure is tresor. And from that, we get our, our English word thesaurus, which is a, a dictionary of alternative words to use for want of finding them. So I use them, obviously, as a writer, I use a thesaurus every day. I don't want to use the same word many times in a paragraph. So I think of alternatives. I go to Mithesaurus, and there it is. Words are a treasure. Um, we, we're talking about expression. In, in Latin, it's expressio. Expressio, it means from outer pressure. Because basically what we're doing is we're using our, our, our anatomy, the back of the throat, to emit air-type sounds that will give us expression. So, of course, take that away. You're back to the pressure. It's a it's a it's a complete synonym for the way the way society is going. And so, if you look at words, you see an archaeology in words, and that's what's so so extraordinary. And and if we look at the sacred sites, the way they're built, look at the great Gothic cathedrals. They are well, probably the most remarkable breakthrough in architecture since the pyramids. They are cathedrals of light, but the arches. Just look at the arches, then go to your mirror, open your mouth wide, and look at the back of your throat. It's one vast Gothic arch. When I go into a cathedral, I see it as a, as a, as a monument to sound, the power of the human voice allied to that of planet Earth. And what's so disappointing now is that the Church of England in this country no longer teaches people, their staff, their pebbedries, their, their canons, their priests, to use the place for what it was built for. They've all got Bluetooth microscope, um, microphones wrapped around their, their heads. And of course, the feeling you get from that 
is one of flatness. It's not using the place and the adumbrations of vibration going around and round and round the interior, which are then hitting us and inspiring us. Inspire from the word in spirit, that we might experience it from the word expirare, out of the spirit, and so on and so forth. Yeah, one of the most interesting um, topics to me that you cover extensively in the book is the you're talking about the Gothic cathedrals, but if we uh, rewind to uh, the Great Pyramids that we've mentioned, uh, other you know megalithic sites such as Stonehenge, Newgrange, uh, is the the acoustic, the sonic qualities of these places, and this all ties back to the, the you know the ex- expression of the human voice and the resonances in these places. Um, I'll refer listeners to a couple of previous interviews I did that are very relevant here. Uh, one with Gary Evans, they're called Listening to the Past, and also Paul Devereaux, uh, Stone Age Soundtracks. So this is a subject that fascinates me, and you do, there's a lot in your book on this uh, subject. And of course, the, 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 this also ties in, that the acoustic qualities of these places ties in with the development of writing, the join, the link between um, ex- express, expressive sounds made by humans and what eventually became writing. And the link is from the voice to these places to writing is in some of these uh, glyphs and shapes and carvings that you see. And for example, the spirals in Newgrange is what I'm thinking of, you know, to tie, yeah. all, to tie all that together. And there's also a really interesting section in the book where you talk about the potential formation of hieroglyphs from vibrations uh, which then resulted in patterns in was it, was it just patterns in dust? I can't remember. Perhaps you can expand on all of that. Um, yeah, a friend of a friend of mine, John Reed, John Stuart Reed. He went to the Great Pyramid, and I was with him uh, in 1998. And he did some experiments in the in the Great Pyramid, which is which is the culmination of the book. Uh, and what happened was simply phenomenal. Um, and basically, John used a process called cymatics. It was the art of seeing sound in pictorial form. Um, so first of all, he needs to work out where the standing wave pattern would form inside the pyramid in the, in the king's chamber. What was curious is that in taking the sound, um, um, forms and, and finding out what their measure was, was that for the first time ever, he had whole numbers. You know, we had 125 hertz, 0.000 at the bottom of the Grand Gallery, going up to 250 hertz, 0.000, and so on and so forth. That's impossible, because at Charter, I believe it's 115.4895 hertz, etc., and so on and so forth. You just don't get whole numbers. So, going into the King's Chamber, John then... Um, played the white noise around it to try and work out where the standing waveform was. And there it was, exactly where the sarcophagus is in the king's chamber. And not only that, but the standing waveform precisely matched that of the sarcophagus. And the standing waveform is where all the waves clash together, but you end up with a vacuum of silence in this one particular spot. It's the optimum place for resonance in that particular room or chamber. So John was quite staggered by this. So he put a, a, a an amp in the um, uh, sarcophagus. Over the top of that, he laid a membrane and took some some desert sand from outside and scattered it all over, and then started to play the optimum resonances upon that sand to see 
what the waveforms looked like so that they could then be mathematically adduced within the imagery. And as with other um, experiments before and since, what happened was just astonishing. When I saw the images, I said to John, this is just beyond anything I've ever come across because we had a full set of Egyptian hieroglyphs. We had the Eye of Ra, the Eye of Horus, we had the hieroglyph for the Jed Pillar, which is the backbone of the god Osiris. And at one point, we had the secret, holy, ineffable name of God from the very earliest dynastic period, which is the double eye of Horus, the left and right eyes together, called the Nebergeur. And I took these photographs to see uh, a friend of mine, um, the late Professor Christine Elmadi, of the British School of Egyptology. And when I showed her the images, having explained what I've just explained to you, she fainted out cold. It was an astonishing response. I rushed to the kitchen to get her a glass of water and uh, perked her up. And I said, is everything okay? And she said, you just don't know what you've got here, do you? She said, this is the ineffable name of God. It's the first time that I've ever seen it at so early a date. It appears later on in the much later dynastic period from around about the 20th dynasty onwards, but not here. The 20th dynasty is around about 900 BC, but this was, you know, we were talking here about 24, 2500 BC. This is really very, very remarkable. Um, and to me, it was the culmination point of my thesis, because Osiris is said to have brought script, which was then um, made um, clear by the scribe of the gods, Thoth, or Juti, as it's called in the in the Egyptian mythologies. To me, it's the culmination of everything, and that's why I've made it the culmination of the book. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.